The words asthma, no puedo respirar, or asthma, I can't breathe, were stenciled on a sign at Tijuana's first, and so far only, Black Lives Matter protest back in June. They were some of the last words a Haitian migrant called out before dying in police custody in Tijuana in January. A few months later, George Floyd said those same words before he died after an officer in Minneapolis pinned him to the ground by putting his knee on his neck. And when activists in Mexico saw the huge protests in response to his killing spread across the U.S. and other parts of the world, it pushed them to confront racism and police brutality in their own community. In many ways, Mexico is way behind the U.S. and other parts of the world when it comes to racial justice. But groups of people across the country are working hard to change that. From PRX and KPBS, this is Port of Entry. I'm Alan Liliental, and every other week, we tell stories about our lives here at the U.S.-Mexico border. Today, we launch a series on politics and race with a story about how the Black Lives Matter movement is crossing the border. It's a story about the intersection of migrant rights and black rights and some of the people who are birthing the Black Lives Matter movement in Tijuana as we speak. Donations come in many forms, a sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. So we got to step back. Take a minute to understand Mexico's black history so we can better understand just how far we've come to get here to this Black Lives Matter moment in Tijuana. For a long, long time, Mexico's black population has been mostly ignored, made virtually invisible by the federal government, a government that, for centuries, refused to recognize it. Honestly, not a lot of Mexicans even know we have black people here, me included at one point. I left Mexico City for the U.S. when I was eight, so I didn't really get taught Mexican demographics or history in school, but I would go back a lot to visit family, and my mental model of what Mexico looked like definitely didn't include black Mexicans. Even walking down the street in Mexico, if I were to see a black person, I would just assume they were visiting from somewhere else. I don't think my parents, who grew up in Mexico their whole lives, even knew any black people until we moved to America. It's just different in Mexico. Whereas people in the U.S. identify with the race a lot, in Mexico, we just all call ourselves Mexican. There are distinctions we make, like Guero and Morenita, but even though those are direct comments on skin tone, it's normalized. Most Mexicans just don't consider it racism. 
Racism just hasn't been confronted in Mexico in any big way yet. But things are slowly starting to change. For the first time ever this year, people in Mexico could actually put a little check mark next to a box that says Afro-Mexicano on the census. It's 2020, that's so wild. The fact that black people in Mexico are finally being counted officially by the federal government, it's a very big deal. Well, it's huge. This is Jorge Gonzalez. It's about data, it's about visibility, it's about recognition. Your rights are protected by the Constitution and the Constitution by us. Supreme Justice Court of the Nation. I remember just, uh, what, like in February, I was hearing it on the radio. In San Diego, lots of local radio stations have transmitters right across the border in Mexico. So they're required to run all kinds of official campaigns. Right here, locally. If you were flipping through the radio stations here, you would, you would say, if you consider yourself an Afro-Mexican, count yourself. Baja California, Mexico. So Jorge has been studying black history in Mexico since the early 2000s. He's a researcher who also serves as the director of the Afro-Mexican department at the World Beat Cultural Center in San Diego. But even he says he knew nothing about the Afro-Mexicanos who have been in Mexico for centuries until he went to undergrad at UC Davis. So we, we did, ended up going to a black community. And in Oaxaca, you know, I'm thinking here that here's it's going to be another like just darker skin, dark community like Cubans, you know. Uh, but they were very, you know, uh, their phenotype were very black. You know, it was a very black community, and and there was other folks who were not as black. So you saw all shades of it, right? And their accent was different. You know, their cooking was different. It, it all honestly felt like you know you were somewhere. I don't know if if it would be equal to, but felt like it was a, a, an African village. You know, somewhere in West Africa. Uh, and, and then the priest was black who we were meeting uh, and he was from Trinidad. So my whole world and understanding of Mexico, Mexico's history right then and there was flipped, right? I completely felt like ignorant. I had no, no clue whatsoever. And, and it just brought a lot of question marks just in anything moving forward from there. And I was just super curious. And right then and there, like, uh, I just knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to research. Jorge says the fact that I didn't know about Mexico's black population isn't at all surprising. Apparently, I'm on the same page as most Mexicans. And in fact, he says it was very much by design. Viva Mexico! Viva Mexico! Viva Mexico! See, the national strategy in Mexico is based on an integrationist theory to create an, one identity, one people, and not have an alternative reality to that, not have a conversation about racism. So in Mexico, what's happened for the past, you know, two, three hundred years is we don't, there isn't a vocabulary to speak on racism. For decades, the Mexican federal government has essentially pushed everyone who lives in Mexico to just see themselves purely as Mexicans urging everyone to consider themselves mestizo, or mixed blood, with European and indigenous roots. It was a movement to bring the country together, to unify us under one umbrella, and it mostly worked. I think the majority of Mexicans do, and, and they just don't know, right? They, they fall under just I'm Mexican's category. And it has to do with a lot of with the, the, the fact that history hasn't done, you know, history hasn't been told correctly. Honestly, if you ask Mexicans if we think racism is a problem in Mexico, a lot of us will say no. 
Instead, the conversation almost always turns to class as a social problem somehow disconnected from race and discrimination. They tend to talk about it as based on class, you know, uh, it's based on where you stand. But, you know, we know when you try to apply for a job, it says you have to be white, you know, to be able to apply for a job. You can't have curly hair to apply for a job. Like, it's literally on the job description. And that's an issue. It is an issue. You can actually advertise a job in Mexico and tell the applicants that they cannot have curly hair. And here in this country, that wouldn't fly, right? Um, so, but there isn't policies in place to prevent that from happening. But it is, there's systematic racism is there. Oh, yeah. So black people have been in Mexico since the very beginning. Many of the earliest black settlers were brought over in the 1500s as slaves by Spanish conquistadores. And right away, the black and indigenous populations of Mexico got along. When I talk about black Mexicans, it's really black and indigenous. You know, uh, the black population there have been mixing with the indigenous population since the beginnings, right? By the early 1800s, slavery was abolished in Mexico, but it took a while for the laws to actually stick. It wasn't until 1829 when President Vicente Guerrero, an indigenous Afro-Mexicano himself, started seriously enforcing anti-slavery laws. When slavery was abolished in the U.S., some black people did flee to Mexico looking for a better life, growing the black population a little bit. An unofficial survey in 2015 showed a black population of 1.4 million, or 1.2% of the Mexican population. This year's census will have a better count of the country's Afro-Mexicano population, but it's been delayed by the pandemic, so we won't have those numbers for a while. The majority of black people in Mexico live in Costa Chica, a coastal area of Guerrero, but Veracruz, Mexico City, and now Tijuana and Mexicali have some pockets of black Mexicans too. For Jorge, the Black Lives Matter movement in Mexico, or at least the recognition of Mexico's black population that's helped lead up to this moment, it's something he actually predicted would happen. For real, in his 2012 grad school thesis, he wrote that by the year 2020, things might come to a head in Mexico. He sent us his 300-page-plus thesis, and it's right there on page 111. He basically says Afro-Mexicanos will finally be counted in the 2020 Mexican census. But the fact that Afro-Mexicanos have been left out of the census for so long, it means Black people in Mexico are still fighting for the basic acknowledgement that they even exist. Some of the folks from Costa Chica, they can't even travel out of the region because they will get deported. They, because they won't believe their, their national identity. They have them sing the, uh, the national anthem to prove their, their Mexicanness, as funny as that sounds. And many have been deported to Honduras, many have been deported to Guatemala. And this continues to happen, so as a result, they don't leave their, their region. The issue of race in Mexico has become more prominent in recent years. And it's not just because of the black people who've always been in Mexico and are tired of being ignored. There's also a new wave of black migrants who've started showing up in Mexico. And just like the black people stolen from their countries centuries ago and brought to Mexico against their will, many of the black people coming to Mexico now, their journeys here are also filled with pain and suffering. And they don't all necessarily want to be in Mexico either, but they're stuck because they can't get across the border into the U.S. 
So now, history is at risk of repeating itself. Mexico's new Afro-Mexicanos could become as hidden as Mexico's existing Afro-Mexicanos unless the Black Lives Matter movement takes hold. In Tijuana, everything shifted a few years ago when Black migrants from Haiti, Cameroon, Ghana, and other countries started showing up here by the thousands. Andrea's seeing a surge of migrants. They began arriving two years ago in a caravan. Just couldn't process them fast enough, and a backlog formed in Tijuana. Meet Jay. Hello. Jay is a divorced mother of five who makes her living as a nurse. I like this job. I like to, I like to help people. She used to work in a pharmacy in Cameroon, but the pharmacy was burned to the ground. The African country has been grappling with conflict and violence since separatists declared independence from the government in 2017. Things are so bad there that hundreds of thousands of Cameroonians have been forced to flee the country since. We're not using Jay's full name, by the way, because she worries about the safety of her children, who are still in Cameroon. Plus, she says she doesn't want anything to hurt her chances of possibly getting asylum in the U.S. or maybe Canada one day. And we weren't able to fact-check her story, but there are many similar stories from Cameroon migrants about the abuses they suffered in their country. Some have gone on record calling what's happening genocide. So after that pharmacy fire, Jay continued her work treating people and getting them the medications they needed by opening an office inside her own home. But one day in 2018, a man showed up at her house, forced his way inside, and made her treat his gunshot wound. That man put the gun in my head, told me if I not put that the man... It can kill me and kill my family. It know everything about me. It's hard to hear, but she says he held a gun to her head and said he'd kill her and her family if she didn't help him. So to keep herself and her family safe, she did. And from there, her life was thrown into complete chaos. This is where Jay's story gets really devastating. We talk about sexual assault and abuse, so this is a heads up in case you need it. Not long after Jay was forced to treat that man, she says soldiers from the military showed up at her door. They were furious and started beating her, asking her where the man was hiding. They called him a terrorist and accused her of being on his side. You see me, I'm scared. I'm scared because that people come here and is no one to understand. Beat me. It's begin to beat me. Say the truth. Take the gun. Put like that. Come. The blood. Beat me like a thief. Jay says she was forced into a truck and taken to a house that had been made into a makeshift prison. She says it was kept pitch black the entire time she was held there. She lost track of time, and all she remembers is being raped repeatedly. Come, begin to rape me, maybe two people. After two people, I see three. After three, I see four. I'm here like that. Like it that to the military, please. Can you shot me? I want to die. 
I need you shot me. Because I don't know why, what I don't do. Why do you treat me like that? As Jay told me her story through a patchy Zoom connection, I could see tears streaming down her face. With the help of a stranger, Jay eventually escaped, and that's when she decided to head to the U.S. to apply for refugee status. She gathered her passport, left her young children with her ex-husband, kissed them all goodbye, and fled. Jay flew to Ecuador, a country that doesn't require a tourist visa for people from Cameroon. Then she started her long journey to the U.S. She walked and took buses through Colombia, the Panama jungle, through Central America, and then into Chiapas, Mexico. She ended up settling down in Tapachula, Mexico, a city just north of the Guatemalan border. It was 2019 and she stayed for about eight months. She thought maybe she'd stay for good, but before too long, she realized she had to move on. She had a job at a restaurant, but her boss fired her when customers started complaining, saying they didn't want to eat with a black person in the room. He told me I'm sorry. I do my best, but there's no one for black people. No work, no work. Jay has deeply sad stories about the racism and discrimination she faced on her journey. When she left Tapachula, she made her way through parts of southern and central Mexico. She says people there would put their shirts up over their faces when she walked by, seemingly afraid to breathe the same air as a black woman. She says immigrant shelters refused to give her and other black migrants the same food they gave everyone else. And she says many Mexican men she came across treated her like a prostitute. I don't know because I, I learned Spanish little, little, little. Every time you pass, all the men, the Mexican man, told you, Quanto, Quanto, hola amiga, Quanto. The first time I'm smiling, I great. I don't know, I don't know is. It's insults me. Jay started calling Mexico evil. My vision is changed about the Mexico because I look Mexico like a devil country. Now I'm sorry to tell that. I'm very sorry, but it's true. I look Mexico like a devil, devil place. Jay headed for the U.S. border more determined than ever to find a safe place where she could restart her life and finally send for her children. They're currently living with her father back in Cameroon. She was desperate to find a place to call home, and she thought the U.S., or maybe even Canada, had to be that place. But then, Tijuana stopped her in her tracks. The city showed her something she wasn't expecting. 
I love Tijuana too much, okay? Because Tijuana gives me freedom. Tijuana show me love. Jay arrived here at the border in March and quickly found her way to Espacio Migrante, a migrant shelter in downtown Tijuana. And now, just a few short months later, she calls the people in the shelter her family. The shelter staff helped Jay find a job, gave her a place to stay, and for the first time since leaving her country two years ago, she says she felt welcomed and wanted. The Tijuana people show me love, prove me I am important, I am important. I'm really important like everybody. I love Tijuana. I love, I, I love Tijuana. I think it's my country. Yeah, yeah. Tijuana has a long history of welcoming waves of migrants. We're a border town. It's literally how we got built. And yeah, the city is a lot more progressive when it comes to race especially when compared to more traditional parts of Mexico. But we're far from perfect. In fact, some of our issues were laid bare a few years ago, when a different wave of migrants started showing up at our border. Protesters in Tijuana sent a clear message to the Central American migrant caravan on Sunday. We don't want you here. More on that unexpected reaction and what it tells us about racism towards black people in Mexico when we come back. Stay with me. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. Before we get to the 2018 Central American caravans, let's step back real quick to 2016. After a devastating hurricane in Haiti that year, thousands of Haitians migrated to the border in hopes of claiming asylum in the U.S., but many of them discovered a broken asylum system and ended up getting trapped at the border instead. I'm generalizing here, but Tijuana as a whole was super welcoming to the new Haitian arrivals. Tijuana residents are responding to the Haitians with unusual hospitality. All day, they stop by the migrant shelters where Haitians congregate, giving away clothes, dropping off snacks like sandwiches and sports drinks, even preparing full meals. Dozens of news articles and documentaries talk about how the city opened up more shelters, gave Haitians jobs, and otherwise treated their arrival like the humanitarian crisis it was. But then, two years later, when the caravans of Central American migrants started showing up, 
they were not met with those same open arms. I was honestly completely shocked and very disappointed by those very angry, public, loud reactions to the caravans. People across Tijuana were complaining about the migrants, calling them criminals, saying it was an invasion, and otherwise treating the Central American migrants like they didn't belong. A migrants' rights activist told me a big part of the problem was that the U.S. had tightened its asylum system under the Trump administration. So when it became clear that most migrants were in Tijuana for good, rather than just passing through, something changed. It's like something broke. And that anti-immigrant sentiment that came with the caravans, it started trickling down and impacting the Haitian migrants too. Good afternoon. I am Dennis. I'm from Haiti. I was born in Haiti. The growth of my family is going up in Haiti. When I talked to Jean-Denis Louis, he was sitting on his bed in his apartment in Tijuana. His 10-month-old baby girl was busy climbing all over him as we spoke. In Haiti, Denis made life as a traditional dance instructor and performer, and his wife ran a restaurant in the city. Life was hard, but okay. But sustaining their okay life eventually got too hard. Haiti was still reeling from the magnitude 7.0 earthquake that struck in 2010. So when Hurricane Matthew hit in 2016, it was just totally devastating. Denis and thousands of other Haitians packed their bags and headed first to Brazil, then to the U.S. border. Some of the Haitians' journeys were difficult and dangerous and involved long, treacherous hikes through jungles without clean drinking water. But Denis was lucky to have enough money to fly directly from Haiti to Tijuana. He planned to declare asylum in the U.S., but when he got to the border, everyone he talked to told him he'd be detained and deported if he tried. I choose Mexico because I don't, I don't want prison. I'm staying here. Denis instead got a permit that allowed him to work and live in Mexico. His wife came a few years later, and when they had a baby, all three of them got permanent residency here. Denis says Tijuana has been mostly good to him, but he has had his share of struggles. At one of his first jobs in the city, his boss refused to pay him his full salary, knowing full well he'd have a hard time as a migrant taking any legal recourse against him. And recently, his classmates at a local university cut him out of a group project and he ended up not getting the credit he deserved. He says he's often made aware of his status as a second-class citizen in Mexico through lots of microaggressions that add up over time. Then he says racism and discrimination are in Tijuana and everywhere in Mexico. But the worst part, he says, is that most Mexicans just won't admit it. Mexico no quiere enfrentar su racismo. Aquí en México hay un racismo más peligroso que todo el mundo. Porque son algo escondida, son algo que está abajo de la mesa. Es así. What's his name? George Floyd! What's his name? George 
When migrants and activists in Tijuana saw the Black Lives Matter movement happening in San Diego and other cities across the globe, they got inspired to bring the movement to the border. Activists in Tijuana actually worked with Black Lives Matter leaders in San Diego to make it happen. One of the goals was to bring attention to the Haitian migrant who died in police custody in January. Police still haven't even released the man's name. It's risky for migrants to get out on the streets and protest for their rights, especially in the middle of a global pandemic. Not to mention the fact that many of them don't have legal status and are at risk of deportation by Mexican immigration officials. But they were willing to take that risk. And at noon on Saturday, June 14th, Denise, Jay, and about 50 other people showed up at El Chaparral, a plaza near the San Isidro port of entry where migrants go to sign up for asylum. From there, they marched to Plaza Santa Cecilia, the same plaza where the Haitian migrant died in police custody earlier this year. At the protest, Jay chanted and danced and then grabbed a microphone hooked up to a large speaker. She wanted to share her story because, like Denny's, she says not enough people are talking about Mexico's racism problem. I do it. I'm there. Yes, of course. I do it. I, I, I will have to organize the, the, the first protest to Black Lives Matters here in Tijuana. They come out the speech. I, yes, I make my speech that day, yes. I protest because my people suffer too much. Long time, long, long time. We want to stop it, okay? We, we want to say enough is enough. You've suffered very much in your life and you've been through so much. What, what gives you strength? What, give, what keeps you going? My children. Love of my children. Just like Love of my children. Yo participé cien por cien en esta organización, en estas cositas, porque... ¿Ya sabes por qué? Por ella. Just like Jay, Denny says he was willing to get out on the streets in the middle of a pandemic not for himself, but for his kid. He says he wants to start the work now to help make a better world for her. Yo tengo 35 años. Yo no, no sirve para nada. Pero la persona que, que va necesita una libertad para vivir, para caminar, para caminar en toda parte del mundo es ella. No es un trabajo que, va, que vamos a tener resultado hoy un día. Es un trabajo, tenemos que hacer paso a paso, paso a paso, paso a paso, ¿no? Es así. Mi experiencia es que, es que la, lo demás, las personas que están haciendo racismo, cambien y se respetan. Nada más. Siempre, eso, siempre.
So yeah, Mexico has ignored the uh, has ignored this issue for for far too long. Researcher Jorge Gonzalez again. In fact, the first time a governor ever visited Costa Chica, it's a 200-mile region in, in Mexico, uh, was in 2011. And the first time a president ever visited the region to recognize the black population, or just visited the region, was actually this year. And that's historical. Before the pandemic hit, Jorge was scheduled to give a talk about Afro-Mexicanos at the downtown San Diego Public Library. It got canceled, but he ended up doing an online talk later. Jorge, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, great. There we go. Thanks for the introduction, Makeda. Much love to everybody who's uh, tuned in. In it, he walked people through the Black history of Mexico and ended by telling the dozens of people who attended virtually about just how far the country has come in order to get to this point, where Black Lives Matter protests are spreading to Tijuana, Mexico City, and other parts of the country. But he also reminded listeners of just how far the country still has to go. And we're just seeing the beginnings of it, of a constitutional reform that took, you know, almost 300 years for it to arrive to where we're at now. Because we know, as the presentation will show, the blackness and African presence in Mexico has been here since its beginnings. So, like I said... The pandemic means that the black rights movement isn't as visible in Mexico as it might be without the threat of the virus hanging in the air. But Jorge says there are more conversations about race happening in Mexico now than ever before. And a lot of it is happening online. So it's a new day, I guess, for Mexico to really understand that our makeup is not just indigenous and European, but it's also heavily black. Jorge isn't just intellectually interested in black Mexicans. For him, it's personal. His wife is a black American woman, and they have two biracial kids. You know, my kids are, are uh, Blacksicans, you know, they're not Afro-Mexicans, but they're Blacksicans. You know, I often hear Mexicans say, oh, look at the negritos, like, you know, little black people. I'm like, no, no, you don't say that. You know, you got to stop there. Um, but that, that is, again, you know, not being aware. There's not a language to say that is racist, that you're being racist at the moment. The pandemic is keeping Jorge from crossing the border to see the movement there up close. But he's not sitting it out on this side of the border. A few months back, Jorge and his wife started a deep discussion with their kids about what's happening in the country and across the world. They put up a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard and took them to a protest for kids. And of course, keeping our distance and all of that. But we got them excited about it. And we, we had to explain to them why it mattered, you know. So, so yeah, I think their, their complexion being Black Mexican kids uh, is something beautiful that here at the house we celebrate. To get involved with the Black Lives Matter movement in Tijuana, connect with the Espacio Migrante page on Facebook or go to espaciomigrante.org. Espacio Migrante is a migrant rights nonprofit and shelter in Tijuana, and we honestly could not have made this episode without the shelter's director, Paulina Olvera Canes. Ebony Bailey, a board member of Espacio Migrante, helped us with this episode as well. Her documentary film, Life Between Borders, is about black migrants in Tijuana, and you can watch it online. 
We also want to thank Wendy Fry and the San Diego Union Tribune for letting us use some footage of the Black Lives Matter protest in Tijuana. Next time on the podcast. Something that I really like about voting in Mexico is that it is on a weekend when a lot of people can go. It's hard for me to understand why here in America people have to like take time off or earn less money that day to go and vote. A story about people who can vote on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border and what they're doing with their votes this year. Port of Entry is written and produced by Kinsey Moreland. Emily Jankowski is our director of sound design. Curtis Fox edits the show. Lisa Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is the director of programming. Port of Entry is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. I'm Alan Liliental. Thank you for listening. Thank you.